Well, you know when you go to a social event, maybe like a dinner party or something, and everyone gets into their little conversation circles, right? There have been a few times where this has happened where I'm in a conversation circle, and it's me and several moms. And the moms, I don't know how it happens, somehow, some way, one of the moms will start sharing a story about when she was in labor with one of her kids, and then another mom is like, oh yeah, well that ain't nothing. And then she shares her labor story, and then another shares her labor story, and usually at that point, I'm like, okay, one of these things is not like the other. I'm going to kind of step back from this. But ladies, moms, you have earned the right to share birth stories. And some, yeah, you can clap for that. <laughs> and some moms share labor stories like they're war stories. Because, I mean, folks, it's labor. It's work. Guys, dads, we don't share birth stories because we do nothing <laughs> The women are doing all the labor. We're there. You know, we're supporting. We're praying. We're encouraging. We're like the cheerleaders on the sideline. But ladies, you have earned the right. And so uh, moms tend to share birth stories. We don't share our own birth stories. I, you know, I have heard my mom share my birth story to other people dozens of times. She talks about how, you know, when I was born many moons ago, Apparently, I got stuck in the birth canal. And so the doctor went and got those, I don't know what you call them, salad spoons. <laughs> and they, 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 they pulled me out. And here's what you may not realize is that for an infant baby, you know, their, their head is very malleable. The skull plates are still forming. And so it formed, when, when they did that, it formed my head like this. My mom literally said, I looked like Dan Aykroyd in the SNL skit Coneheads. <laughs> and so the doctor took me, handed me to my mom. My mom looked at me, looked at my dad, looked at me, looked at my dad. And she said, and I quote, because I've heard this dozens of times, well, we'll love him anyway. <laughs> <laughs> So we don't usually share our own birth stories unless they are unique or peculiar. And today we are looking at the birth story of Moses. Now, pop quiz, who wrote the book of Exodus? Moses. So he's telling his own birth story, perhaps one that he has heard from his mother. Now, before we get into the text, let me just say a couple things as we look at the Old Testament this spring. First of all, there are different genres in the Bible. So there are about a dozen or so literary genres. You have poetry, like Psalms. You have wisdom, like Proverbs. You have prophecy, like Revelation. You have law, like in, we see in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You have uh, didactic passages, like the parables. Uh, you, you, we have... Um, you know, poetry and, and epistles, like the letters of, of Paul, different literary genres require different approaches. So you're not going to look at a newspaper and read it like it's a poem. Different genres require different approaches. And today we are looking at historical narrative. Now when you look at narrative in scripture, what should you look for? Well, I'm going to give you three things. Okay, so write these down. When you read, uh, by the way, narrative is storytelling with a purpose. And 43% of the Bible is narrative. Almost half of the Bible is story because this is one big redemptive story about how God has redeemed mankind through Jesus. And our little stories are a part of this 
Big story, okay? So half of the Bible is narrative. So what do you look for in narrative? Well, three things. Themes, types, and truths. Themes. Are there symbols, pictures, words, phrases used repetitively, referenced several times that have an undercurrent of meaning? For example, you'll see throughout Exodus, kings and kingdoms. That keeps coming up. You have the king of Egypt, the pharaoh, but also these other opposing kings, warring kings against the people of Israel, God's people. And so they are constantly butting heads with the king of all kings. And I I don't know much, but I know when you go against the king of all kings, that is a losing proposition. And so here are these kings, and they're trying to oppose the people of God, oppose the king of all kings, because there are two kingdoms in our world, the kingdom of man, the kingdom of the world, and the kingdom of God, and they are diametrically opposed. We see this theme throughout the Bible. So themes. Second, types. Types are foreshadowing symbols or figures that are fulfilled later in the New Testament, specifically in Jesus. So Moses is a type for Jesus. We know that because the book of Hebrews says that Jesus is a greater Moses, a better Moses. And so uh, within types, you have this subcategory, allegory. Allegory is a part of a narrative that may have a deeper, hidden meaning. Now be careful with this. You don't want to read things into the text. Some people do that. You know when you go to the beach and you see that guy with a metal detector, he's got headphones on, sunglasses, no shirt for whatever reason, you're like, okay, this guy is kind of loco. And he's combing the beach with a metal detector, and then, oh, he starts digging right there. Oh, it's a soda can. I thought I had some treasure. He goes somewhere else. Oh, it's a bottle cap. Another bottle cap. He's looking for treasure, but he finds nothing but bottle caps. Now, when you are a hammer, you look at the world, and everything else is a what? A nail. When you're looking for these deep, mystical, hidden, secret meanings in the text, you're going to find them, but they're not really there. They're just bottle caps because you're using the wrong metal detector. However, not everything, so first of all, not everything in Scripture is allegorical. You know, that leads to mysticism. That leads to poor biblical interpretation. However, there are some blatant allegorical themes in Scripture, we're going to see a couple today. So you look for themes, look for types, and look for truths. Discern the main truths of the passage. And one of the main truths we're looking at today is the sovereignty of God. So one other thing before we get into this. Is the Old Testament really relevant in the Christian life? Like, do we really need to? It's the Old Testament. Come on. It's so antiquated. I've heard this from people. That, oh, it's old. You can just read the New Testament. You don't need the Old Testament. It's so old. Is that true? No, it's so relevant. Now imagine being married to your spouse, but you can't remember how you got to that point. Like you have amnesia, you're married, you know you love your wife, she loves you, but you can't remember how you got there. You know, we see this in movies like Overboard or 50 First Dates, right? And so you could see the love of your wife. You could see how she is so servant-hearted and kind. You could see her amazing character, how much she loves you, and, and, and you love her because of who she is and what she does. But you have amnesia, and you can't remember the buildup in the relationship up to that point. And so, yes, you will love that person, but knowing the backstory 
so much more brings fuller expression of your love. And the Old Testament, now could you read the New Testament and that's it? Technically, yes. But the Old Testament fills in the backstory. It brings such a fuller expression of why we love Jesus. In fact, throughout the Old Testament, for centuries, you have this buildup, this buildup, this anticipation of the Messiah. And behold, in the New Testament, he's here. The Messiah is here. So it's the buildup. It's the backstory. God is the God of the New Testament and the Old Testament. We don't serve two gods. We serve one God, and he is unchanging. So yes, the old, I am so thrilled we're in the Old Testament. So, let's look at Exodus chapter 2. It starts like this. Boy meets girl. Girl meets boy. Boy loves girl. Girl loves boy. Boy and girl get married, and they have a baby. Something that is played out throughout history. This is, okay, commonplace. Everything checks out to this point. We know the father's name from Exodus 6 is Amram. The mother's name is Yocheved. And so they get married, have a baby, classic love story. We've seen played out in history billions of times. Except, remember when you look at the scriptures, there's one main guideline you need to know. For real estate, what's the number one most important word in real estate? Anyone know? Location, location, location. When you are studying God's word, when you're digging into the text, you need to remember one main word, context, context, context. Look at the historical context, so what is going on in that time period when it's being written, and look at the literary context. Look at the preceding verses, the verses that come after, the surrounding verses, the parallel passages to get the author's intended meaning. And so we see in Exodus chapter 1, what's going on? Well, you have the Hebrew people, they move into Egypt, they grow, they multiply. The Egyptians enslave them out of fear, but they continue to multiply. They are multiplying like crazy. And so Pharaoh and his Egyptian leaders decide, what are we going to do about this? They're going to outnumber us. Something must be done. Oh, I got an idea. What if we have every male child, every baby boy thrown into the Nile and killed? It's an insidious, heinous, wicked, evil plan, but that's what they do. And so this is a problem. It's genocide. It's ethnocide. It's a problem, major problem, when you have a child and that child is a boy. There is simultaneously celebration followed by immediate horror. You know when you see your baby for the first time? You are filled with wonder, filled with delight, filled with love. It's love at first sight, right, parents? I mean, you see your baby that you literally just met, that you laid eyes on seconds before, and you never knew you could love anything so much. You are filled with love. That's why you see pictures on social media of moms who were in labor for hours all night, and so their eyes are puffy. They're not wearing makeup. Their hair is a mess, but they don't care. They take a picture with their baby, holding their baby because they're so proud of this baby. It's love at first sight. They want all their friends to see this child who they love so much. It's love at first sight. Can't wait to show him off or her off. This mother sees the baby boy, and he's beautiful. He's perfect. Her heart is filled with joy, filled with delight, filled with love and compassion. 
In fact, the Hebrew word used here is the word tov, meaning good, pleasing. It's the exact same word we see in Genesis chapter 1 in the creation account. After every day of creation, God, he, he saw everything, and behold, it was what? Good, tov. He creates humanity, and behold, it was very tov, very good. So she sees her baby and he's good, he's pleasing, he's special, he's unique, he's beautiful, he's just like God created him to be, just how he should be. He's part of God's plan. She is in love. But then she remembers the situation. He's a baby boy. And joy instantly turns into angst. No chance she is giving up this child to die. She does everything she can to protect him. Her maternal ki- instincts kick in, and every mom in here can now empathize. You're not getting my child. So she hides him. Now, what is the challenge of hiding a baby? Well, contrary to the Christmas carol, Silent Night, babies aren't so silent Parents of newborns in here, your sleep-deprived essence right now is testament to this. By the way, you will one day sleep again. It's okay. This too shall pass. Sleep is not something of a bygone era. But you can't reason with a baby to keep them quiet. They're screamers. They're criers. Oh, sure, you may be able to keep them hushed and occupied for a moment, but that moment is fleeting. And for three months, this mother watches over her baby, keeps him hidden, which really is quite impressive. But after three months, she gets to a point of desperation. I can't do this anymore. I'm not able to do this anymore. The Egyptian troops are right outside. I can hear them marching right out in the streets. And what if they hear the sound of a crying baby? What is that? Who is that? Is that a baby I hear? Is that baby registered? Is it a baby boy? Because you know the edict from our king. You know the edict from Pharaoh that every male child must be thrown into the Nile. If it's a baby boy, it must be killed. So what am I supposed to do? What do I do? I can't keep up this charade any any longer. Every day, his lungs grow. He gets stronger and he gets louder. Well, look at verse 3. Necessity is the mother of invention. And this mother gets inventive. She gets creative. So she weaves a basket made out of papyrus reeds, and it's daubed with petroleum-based tar and plant-based pitch resin, making it watertight. The King James Version, if you have that copy of the scriptures, actually uses the word ark instead of basket. It's the same Hebrew word, ark, basket. Hmm, interesting. Keep that under your hats. There might be something there. In fact, in Genesis 6, Noah uses the exact same substances, bitumen and pitch, to make the ark watertight. Again, hmm, interesting. Keep that in mind. So she places the basket among the reeds in the river near the river bank. A little side note. I think this is important. Two years ago, we were going through the book of Romans, right? And we talked about Romans uh, 13. Submit to governing authorities. Submit to our leaders. Except, there is an exception to that. When should you not submit to your governing authorities? When should there be civil disobedience? I would say in two cases. 
when our leaders, when our governing authorities forbid us to value life, it's time for civil disobedience. You know, we looked three weeks ago, every single person has the imago dei, the image of God imprinted, God's fingerprint on us. And so because we were made in the image of God, every person has the value of God. Every human life has value from before the womb to the tomb. Everyone has value. So if our governing authorities forbid us to value life, folks, it's time for civil disobedience. Or second, when we are forbidden to live out our Christian faith, it's time for civil disobedience. And there's a little civil disobedience going on in here in Exodus chapter 2. Now technically, technically, Yocheved obeyed the edict. The edict was... If you have a baby boy, you are to cast him into the Nile. Well, she cast him into the Nile, but with a life-saving raft. I don't see a problem. (laughs) I mean, she cleverly found a loophole there, and good for her. Clearly, the mother cared about her child. Think about the agony she is going through. She wants to preserve her child, but she can't preserve him under her care any longer, and so she goes to the river with her daughter, who we know is Miriam, a few years older than Moses, and she takes that basket, places it in the river, tears streaming down her face. God, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Please preserve this child. Please protect this child. You can see, you can, you can feel the agony within her, her gut-wrenching decision to do this, her heart being rent in two. But she's not releasing him to chance. She's not releasing him to happenstance. She would not because she loves her child. She already demonstrated she has no fear in the edict of the Pharaoh. She was willing to risk her life for him. She does this because she trusts in her Lord. It's faith. And oh, what faith. So much faith that his parents are listed in the hall of faith. Look at Hebrews eleven twenty three. 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born was hidden for three months by his parents, Amram and Yocheved, because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Parents, you know when you take your kid to school for the first day and you pull up to the curb and you drop them off or maybe you walk them into the classroom and you hand off that kid to the teacher and you walk back to your car, there's a lump in your throat. You get back in your car and you're like not going to cry, not going to cry, not going to cry. Allergies kick in, you know, and you're crying on the way home because you just, you just dropped off your little baby girl and your little baby boy that you just delivered. It seems like yesterday they're becoming a big girl. They're a big boy. They're at school. Or maybe the first overnight trip for your child. Or certainly when you drop off your kid at college, it's tough. It's gut-wrenching. There's a level of trust involved. That's what's going on here. Folks, desperate times call for faithful measures. Desperate times call for faithful measures. And I guarantee, well, I can't guarantee because the text doesn't say, but I'm pretty sure that Yocheved, as she puts her baby into the Nile River, as she casts him in this little baby ark, that she's praying, and she's praying with all her might, oh God, do something. Lord, please take care of this baby. I am nothing without you. We are nothing without you. We are entrusting him to you and you alone. 
So she puts the basket there in the reeds by the riverbank. Why? I think it was by design. Look at verse 5. Why does she place the baby among the reeds of the riverbank? Well, we tend to think of Moses in the basket floating down the river. If you've seen the movie Prince of Egypt, the animated movie in the late 90s, so good. You know, in this scene, the basket's being tossed to and fro by the waves, and it's a wave will crash and make it, the basket avoid a crocodile chomping down just in time, and then the oars of a rowing boat hit the basket, and so it tosses it back and forth, and all these little movements direct it just right into the waters near the palace. Now, is that what happened? Maybe. We don't know. That's not, the text doesn't say one way or another. God is supernatural. God is a God of impossibilities. If that's the way he wanted to do it and orchestrate it, then he could do that. And that makes the story that is already supernatural so much more better. But is that what happened? We don't know. I think that the mother placed him in a low flow area specifically so that he would not wash out with the current downstream into the river. It's a strategic location. I wonder if the mother knew that the Pharaoh's daughter regularly bathed there. Verse 7, the baby's sister Miriam is there almost immediately. We know from verse 4 that she was watching from a distance to see what would happen with this baby basket, I think, because she knew, again, who usually showed up there to bathe. Perhaps it was intentionally placed. When she and her mother did not, what she and her mother did not know was whether or not the Egyptians who discovered him would allow him to live or not. Regardless, the princess is down there and she goes to the river to bathe. Her attendants are up higher on the river bank. They're probably looking out for crocodiles and dangers. They're looking out for other people to give her privacy. And they hear something. What is that? What, what's that sound? Do my ears deceive me? Is that the sound of a baby? How could I hear the sound of a baby crying near the Nile River? What is that? One of the attendants probably says, uh, Ma'am, uh, your highness, miss, what, what is that thing floating next to you? Is that a turtle shell? She, she approaches very cautiously. The sound of crying, of a baby's crying gets louder and louder. She notices it's a basket. She places her ear to the basket. There's crying inside. There's a baby inside here. So she opens the basket, and lo and behold, there is a baby It's a baby boy as she peers in, noticing a baby boy. Now, she could tell right away that he was a Hebrew. Maybe he was wearing traditional Hebrew baby clothes. Maybe there were physical differences between the Egyptians and the Israelites. Regardless, he's a Hebrew. So she was legally obligated to have him thrown into the Nile to be killed. But, once again, it's love at first sight. His mother saw him and saw that he was beautiful. Now this princess looks upon him and her heart is filled with compassion. The text literally says that she had pity on him. She showed mercy, even though she knows he is a Hebrew child. So she could have called the guards to have this child disposed of as the law commanded, but her heart overruled her national allegiance in that moment. And here he is, he's crying He's screaming. He's agitated. Quite honestly, he's hangry. How am I going to get him, you know, someone to nurse at this hour, at this moment? And here's where ingenious ingenuity comes in. 
because Miriam is just around the corner. She's hiding in the reeds, and she pops out, and she says, Your Highness, Madam, my apologies. Uh, forgive me for the intrusion, but I couldn't help it over here. You need someone to nurse that child. Shall I go get a woman among the Hebrews to nurse this child for you? And with one word, the princess says, Go. Here, take this baby. He is yours. And this allowed a few more years for the mother to be with her child until he is weaned. Not only was she sanctioned, his very mother, so, so Miriam takes Moses to his very own mother, Yocheved, and not only was Yocheved sanctioned by the Egyptian crown to be a wet nurse for her own baby, but they unknowingly paid her to do so. They paid the baby's own mother to be with her own son. So whether this was all part of their strategic plan or not, it was part of God's plan. God sovereignly watched over the baby and ensured his safety from the Egyptians by the Egyptians. Ironically, he was not only rescued from the river by Pharaoh's own daughter, but he grew up under the protection of the one who had threatened his very existence. In fact, he would have been educated by the finest teachers and trainers in the land as he grew up in the palace. And he would have learned about tactics in warfare, learned about leadership, which would have made him suitable to lead, oh, I don't know, an entire people. He was probably trained in rhetoric, which would come really in handy when you're going to write the first five books of the Bible. See, this is, the whole, this is the thing about God. This is what I love about God. That's what God does. He flips things around on their head. Once again in Scripture, we see circumstances flip from dire to blessing, from hopeless to hopeful. We see in Genesis, Abraham is childless. He's, he's old in his old age. He's 99 years old. He's promised he's going to have a baby, but nothing. And then God gives him a baby, and through that child, he fathers a multitude of nations. Jacob runs for his life, flees from his brother Esau, and then he goes and he establishes his own family, the family of Israel. Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers, but he rises to prominence as a ruler in Egypt. God turns trials into triumphs. I'm going to say that again, folks. God turns trials into triumphs. Now, this is not, hear me, this is not health and wealth prosperity gospel. Because that would be saying, oh, you'll never go through trials. Or if you do, just pray hard enough, just believe hard enough, have enough faith, and you can wish those trials away. That's not life. That's not the truth in Scripture. Trials come, Christians. If you can attest to that, can you just see your hand? You've gone through trials. Come on now. Every hand should be raised. We go through difficulties. Trials may last for a moment or they may last for a lifetime. But what the Bible shows time and again is God uses everything, including struggles for our sanctification and for his glory. So you look at narrative, you're looking for what? Themes, types, truths. Themes are so important in narrative. We see a theme here. And it's the theme of people being saved through the danger of water. What's another time, let's say in Genesis, where God's people are saved through the danger of water? Noah. Yeah, this is not a trick question. 
Genesis 6 through 8, Noah and the ark, which preserves eight people, Noah's family, through the dangers of a global flood. And then we look ahead to Exodus 14, and God's people cross through what? Red Sea. Spoiler alert, I know. But God's people are preserved, again, through the danger of water. Jonah 1, Jonah is saved from a tempest in the sea by being swallowed by a large fish. Jesus, in Matthew 14, walks on water. Jesus, in Mark 4, calms the raging seas. So there's this theme of God preserving his people through the danger of water. There's a theme. Now what about types? Remember types? See, when you read the Old Testament, you should ask, does this point to Jesus? And if so, how so? There's biblical precedent for this. In Luke 24, 27, Jesus is with his disciples, a couple of them, on the road to Emmaus. And it says that he opened up the scriptures, Moses and the prophets, the Old Testament, and showed them how everything pointed to him. So what points to Jesus here? Well, water in these passages symbolizes the danger of death and the beauty of rescue. So we can look ahead to what baptism represents, namely rescue and redemption through Jesus. This is biblical. 1 Peter 3 literally mentions, the, mentions Noah's ark as pointing to Jesus, as pointing to what baptism represents, rescue and redemption. So here's our Messiah moment, folks. Ready? Here's a proper use of allegory. Who or what in this passage allegorically represents Jesus? Is it Moses? Well, not in this passage. Is it the Pharaoh? Is it the water? Is it his mother, his sister, the princess? What is it that represents Jesus? The basket. The baby ark represents rescue from death and redemption to life through Jesus. Jesus was not overcome by the waves of death. As he's on the cross and he's being encompassed, overwhelmed, enveloped by the waves of death, if you will. He's not overcome by that. On the third day, he would rise again. And one day in Jesus, you will rise again too. So in baptism, we go into the water, but folks, you come out, otherwise that would be murder. You go into the water, but you come out. God has brought his people safely through the waters, and one day he will bring you safely through death into life and joy through Jesus. Rescue is here, and it's provided through Jesus. See, in my notes right there, I have that statement. What punctuation do, I, do you think I used after that statement? You think I used a question mark? Rescue is here? Think I used a, a period? There's an exclamation point. Boom! Folks, let's, <laughs> this is something to celebrate. So let me say it again, and let's muster up some joy and excitement here. Rescue is here. Rescue is now, and it comes through Jesus. Which leads us to the last verse, verse 10. Names have significance. And Moses' name means drawn out, for he was drawn out of the water. Moses was not the ultimate deliverer in this story. He too had to be delivered. See, there was one behind the scenes orchestrating the details whose hands were guiding things along by his good and sovereign plan. Do you realize in these verses God is not named a single time? The Lord is not mentioned in this passage once, yet his handiwork is unmistakable. We see the same thing in the book of Esther. You realize in the book of Esther, 10 chapters, God is not named. The Lord's not mentioned once. And yet, 
<laughs> he's the, his hand is undoubtedly at work orchestrating everything. The greatest, most vital character in that narrative, yet he's not mentioned once. How apropos. Because God is the greatest character in our narrative story, and yet seemingly, at least in our estimation, behind the scenes, we so easily forget about him. The unseen gets shoved aside for the seen. Our predicaments, our circumstances, the things we see and we miss God behind the scenes. We, we miss the unseen spiritual truths, the spiritual reality that is even greater and more true than the reality physically that we live in. You think all this in the birth of Moses happened because of happenstance? God is not the God of coincidence. Can we throw that word out of our vocabulary, coincidence? There are no coincidences. It's like when I hear a Christian, they're going, oh man, look at the weather. I guess Mother Nature's getting angry again. No, because Mother Nature doesn't exist. That's God. Circumstances don't exist. God is not the God of coincidence. There is no such thing as coincidence. And I wish, oh, I hear so many stories in ministry. I've heard stories of someone getting in a car accident, which is terrible. They go to the hospital, they get an MRI of their broken bones, and while they get an MRI, they discover, oh, you have an early form of cancer. There's an operable tumor. If we didn't discover this now, you would have died. The car accident actually saves their life. I've heard stories of people going into massive financial debt, maybe because of medical bills or whatever. They can't afford to get out of this. And somehow, someone provides a check, maybe it's a friend or a stranger, for that exact amount. I've literally heard that story two or three times. Even with the people not even knowing that they were in debt. I've heard stories of adult children who want nothing to do, to do with God. They walk away from the home. They leave the home. They run away only to encounter a Christian who impacts them with their friendship. And they trust in Jesus and they run back to God. God is not the God of coincidence. Now, you may be sitting here going, yeah, but I'm going through difficult times now. I'm going through struggles now. That all sounds great, and I would love my trials to turn into triumphs. I would love to imagine that triumphs are at the end. I would love to imagine that there is light at the end of this tunnel, but I'm in the thick of it now. Listen, your story isn't finished yet. Plus, you may not be meant to see those results, at least this side of heaven. God is the unseen deliverer. He's the one behind the scenes, watching, moving, working. You know, when you go to a concert of a symphony and the orchestra is there and they're all seated at their, their seats and then here comes the conductor and he walks on the platform and he takes his baton, tink, 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 tink. He starts directing the band and he brings in the flute section, the, the winds, the strings, the oboes, the bassoons, the clarinets, and then he brings in the horn section, the trumpets, the trombones, the French horn, and then he brings in the strings, the cellos, the, the violins, and then he brings in the percussion, and he's, you know, for a part of it, he's going staccato, and then he does crescendo with this section, and he decrescendos this one, and he's directing the orchestra exactly as he wants to in every point, every moment that they need to be. Now, if you were there in the audience and you close your eyes, you will hear all the instruments. You know what you'd never hear? You'd never hear the conductor. And yet, without the conductor's guiding hand, there's no music, no melody, no harmony. 
No syncopation, just aimless, directionless cacophony of noise. But guided by the hand of the conductor, now you have a beautifully arranged composition. And God is the conductor. He's the composer. He's even the creator of the instruments, if you will. The concealed creator helped this mother conceal her child for three months. The God who guides guided her hands as she formed the basket to protect him. The one who orchestrates directed Pharaoh's daughter to open the basket. And as she opened the basket, he opened her heart to the child. So often we get lost in our dire circumstances that we miss seeing the unseen deliverer. Even when we don't see that you're working, you never stop, never stop working. Even when I don't feel that you're moving, you never stop, never stop moving. We were tossed around by the turbulent waves of our self-imposed sin with its harsh ramifications of despair, brokenness, guilt, shame, destruction, death, and worst of all, separation from God. And here's Satan, and he's sneering. He's wringing his hands together in delight as mankind takes his bait and rejects the creator who loved us so much in exchange for the false desert mirage of self-reliance, only to experience loss and pain and death. The turbulent waves of death are crashing over us. Death was about to envelop us with its cold, calculating grasp. But God. See, there's an implied, story, uh, implied truth in this story. Moses could not rescue himself. Couldn't rescue himself from death. His mom, his dad, his sister could not save him ultimately. There is trust in God for salvation. And through Jesus, God carries us through. Through Jesus, he surrounds us by his love. Through Jesus, he shields us from eternal death. Through Jesus, he rescues us through his plan of redemption. Through Jesus, he grants us life through the vessel of his grace. Our rescuer, our deliverer, had a plan all along. And it's the plan of rescue and redemption. See, Moses' name means drawn out, meaning deliver, rescue. The dramatic irony is he would be the one used to draw out God's people from slavery and oppression. He was drawn up out of the water, and he would lead the people as they were drawn out of Egypt through the waters of the Red Sea. But there is a greater Moses, a better Moses, a more wonderful rescuer and deliverer, and his name is Yeshua, Jesus. His name literally means salvation. So Moses had to be delivered, but Jesus was sent to deliver Moses had to be rescued, but Jesus rescues us to bring salvation, not just for the Hebrew Israelite people, but for all his people from our sins, delivery from death to life. Our rescuer brings us through the waters of death into life. So practically speaking, how does this impact you? Not just on Sundays, but Monday through Friday. God is not the God of coincidence. So where does he have you and why? Are you a stay-at-home mom? And you're like, well, why does God have me here? Listen, God, you're, that's an important job. God has you there for a reason. Are you at work? Maybe you're at the steel mill. Maybe you push a button. Maybe you make deliveries. Man, this seems so mundane. Why am I even here? This is such a waste of my time. Is it? God has you there for a reason. God's not the God of coincidence. How does our deliverer give you a new lease on life? Maybe you're here and you've trusted in Jesus, but you've never been baptized. Listen, two weeks from today, March 6th, we're having a baptism service. 
So do you want to identify with all believers who have gone before you? Do you want to identify with your church family through your baptism? And more importantly, do you want to identify with Jesus and his death and resurrection through what baptism represents, namely rescue? Do you repent of your sins, believe in Jesus alone, and trust him with your whole life? And maybe you're here and you've never done that. Today could be your day of salvation, and two weeks from now we will celebrate with you in the waters of baptism.